0: head over and find our new Facebook groups page. You can go out there and search Mentors, the number 4 MIL on Facebook, and when you find our regular page, look on the left-hand side menu and you'll see groups. Request to join, and it's that easy. You're now linked in to like-minded individuals. Hey everybody, it's Robert Gowan. So, most people know about the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. It's part of USASOC, or the United States Army Special Operations Command. And, of course, today, they're well-known during Operations Enduring Freedom and since October 2001 when they entered into the fight and engagement and transporting around Special Operations Forces. Most of the time, though, what you hear about are from the aviators. Today, though, we're actually going to get a chance to hear from an enlisted's perspective as a member of a crew chief of a Chinook helicopter. David Burnett is a former uh, soldier and part of the 160th And so he joins us this time to tell his story about the making of a Night Stalker. So sit back and relax and enjoy another episode of Mentors for Military with me as your host, as well as Scott Johnson, as we welcome David Burnett to the show. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. So first off, welcome to the uh, Mentors for Military podcast and cool that you got a chance to reach out and we had a, an opportunity to talk a little bit about yourself, your background and such, which we're going to get into here within the podcast. But maybe could, you could start off by just saying, you know, when it was that you came into the, uh, the Army and what was your MOS and, and uh, what led you to wanting to join the military in the first place?
1: Okay, so I uh, born and raised in Denver, Colorado, and I enlisted in the army in two thousand eight. And what uh, triggered my interest to enlist was uh, the aviation side of things. Uh, my whole family is uh, a lot of them are pilots, uh, but they all fly fixed wing. I wanted it to be different because I've kind of beat to my own drummer my whole life. So I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the helicopter thing. And so I enlisted as a 15 uniform, which is a Chinook helicopter repairer, uh, in hopes to uh, fly one day uh, in the Army in a Chinook. But you didn't try to go
0: warrant officer straight out then.
1: I did, but uh, the recruiter just, you know. they they, (laughs) You would do us
0: recruiters. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, We uh, we talked they, to you first about, no, no, man, you want to go enlisted route first and then go ahead. Yeah. And, you know why you do that, right? So that way you can get the quota that you need in terms of a either a high school graduate, a high school senior, you know, whatever type of category you need for that month to make what was then called mission box. I don't know if that's what they still call it today, but it's sort of like, no, man, you, you really don't want to do that. What you want to do is go earn your stripes and then go on yep. to be a warrant officer and officer. So I'm hearing that that's exactly what was sold to you then. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yep, that's pretty much what happened. Too much paperwork at the end of the day is what... Uh, is pretty oh, much that what was the other part. Yeah, I mean,
0: no, I can't do it. That's just going to be too much paperwork. It's going <laughs> to take too long. You know, yeah. Love yeah.
1: it. So, uh, 2008, I went in and after BASIC and AIT, I was then had orders to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where I was stationed with 563rd Aviation Support Battalion, which is a detachment of 101st mm-hmm. there at Campbell. And uh, I was really excited after AIT. I, I did well, I enjoyed working on the helicopter. And I wasn't at the unit for three months, and then we were ripping out to head to Afghanistan for a 13-month-long tour, Uh, and so I was kind of immersed right away into the, okay, we're we're already packing up, getting ready to go, head over to the pond, and just working on the helicopter for, you know, 12-hour, 14-hour days, that whole deployment, so it really allowed me to hone the craft and I I learned a lot about the Chinook and all the components and everything that makes that thing fly, even though it shouldn't fly. It's so big. It's just wasn't really meant to fly. Um, And then, after working on it for so long, I I've, I've realized this unique role that these crew chiefs would bring in the aircraft to us to completely tear down and reset pretty much after it hit a certain amount of flight hours. And I was like, I want to do that. Whatever, whatever I have to do to become a Chinook crew chief, that's what I want to do. So that's when the gear started turning in my head and I was just started doing as much research as I could as far as how do I get into that role. Uh, But unfortunately the unit I was in didn't have slots for 15 uniform Chinook helicopter maintainers to advance into that crew chief role. So then I started researching, well, if I can't do that, what are the other ways I can maybe get out of this unit? and place myself in a position to become a chinook crew chief so whatever that was going to take that's what i was going to do
0: so just for understanding for those who might be you know maybe listening it's not very familiar with this route and everything what is it that sets apart the difference between just a regular crew member on a chinook from that that's the crew chief and is it a special identifier is it a special training or what kind of you know so when you're talking about this and they're limited slots is it based on rank based on identifier additional training maybe kind of Cover that.
1: Yeah. So, as far as the the unit I was in, they were an advanced intermediate maintenance uh, battalion. So, they didn't even have the ability to put maintainers into aircraft because they weren't their aircraft. We supported aircraft that were of an AVUM unit. Uh, they had their own maintainers, which they were able to go into the crew chief crew chief slot. For me to jump into that role, I had to start searching out other uh, opportunities for me to leave the unit. Gotcha.
0: Okay. So that's when you started looking at other opportunities and other units and what was the one that kind of cut your eye at that caught your eye at that point?
1: Hands down, one sixtieth Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Was that because it was
0: at Fort Campbell and you saw it there? Or was it something that you saw over in the sand?
1: It's a rare occurrence and a rare sighting to see any of their fleet flying during the day, and that's when I worked out of the hangar was during the daytime. Uh, but once these gears started turning in my head, it was only a few weeks later that I saw a 160th MH47 Gulf Chinook taxiing on the flight line, t- uh, two-ship taxi, so it was Chalk 1 followed by Chalk 2. And we were out on the flight line doing some unscheduled maintenance on a helicopter, and I just saw a crew chief sticking out of the right door gun behind the minigun. I couldn't see an inch of his skin. I mean, he had a black visor down, face mask, flight helmet, flight suit. And I was like, that—that that is what I want to do. After that, you know, I did everything I could, which was I had to fill out a lengthy application, turn it into my section sergeant. And then at that point, he would take it up the chain of command. And then if they approved it, then they would send it to the 160th recruiters back in the States. And it was a waiting game from there.
0: What point were you in the scene at this point? I mean, were you a few months in, or were you near the end of your rotation cycle, or
1: what was the timeline? We had, we had about three months left of the deployment. and Okay, so it's not I, too
0: bad then, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's not it's not too bad, but the, the kicker is my section sergeant uh, was prior uh, 160th Chinook crew chief, oh, and so he had a bit of insight into that unit and that op tempo but for some reason when i handed him the application he had this dumbfounded look on his face and he was like wait wait a second you know i don't think you're cut out for this you can't do this that's the kind of mindset and persona that he put off when i turned in that
2: application to him
0: of course i just probably fired you up yeah
2: (laughs) why did he come out of 160s david and go back to a normal unit so it's funny when
1: I first met him, you know, and he's my senior. He was a staff sergeant at the time, and I was a a private, nothing. Um, he had all the guys convinced uh, who he was in charge of that he left on, on his own accord. Hmm. But but it turns out I found I found out later on the actual reason that he got kicked out when I made it into the unit. So it was kind of uh, yeah kind of interesting so here, to learn what well not only that but
0: here's that. a guy that's basically pre-screening you or other individuals about going into a unit that they're no longer a part of and not by their you know they, it, it's not like they had a choice in the they're first place choice, yeah, yeah so that,
2: that's probably part of the reason why he, he didn't want you to join because you you knew him you know and yeah eventually what happened when you got there you found out the reason why he was actually kicked out so yeah yeah but, um, yeah. And he was
1: just kind of being the gatekeeper yeah. and throughout the deployment he is the quintessential form of the worst type of leadership that you can ever fathom in your in your mind. He, it was just awful. I mean, one one minute he'd be your best friend and then the next minute he would be, you know, screaming and yelling at you. And it wasn't just towards me, it was towards other even uh, senior more leadership that I got to know throughout the deployment, which was unfortunate. But anyways, I turned the application into him and he said, "Okay, I'll handle it going on a month now. And I still haven't heard anything, you know, between turning in all my applications and stuff. And then I was like, all right, screw it. I'm going to go directly to the first sergeant and say, hey, he said he turned it into you. Where is it? What's happening? Can you give me a status update? And. You, you and I and all of us all know, you know, there's a chain of command for a reason and overstepping someone like that is pretty frowned upon. But I was at the point where I was just willing to take whatever consequences came my way just so I could get an answer. So I, I go into Top's office and I ask him about the application and he, he said, I have not received an application from your section sergeant. I have no idea what you're talking about get me an application in the morning and I'll, I'll make sure to handle it. I said, okay, great. So the next morning, I don't even say anything to my section sergeant. I'm just like, whatever, you know, he, obviously he's trying to keep me from getting into this unit at any way he can about three or four days pass after I turn it into the first sergeant. And I'm sitting in my B hut on my day off. We got one day off every 14 days on that deployment, you know, sitting in my, in my eight by 12, whatever plywood room, watching a DVD on my laptop and the, the door slams open up the B hut and it's, uh, my section Sergeant just screaming and yelling for me, get outside on the porch right now. You know, all this stuff, you know, yelling profanities and screaming at me. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, what did I do? So I go out on the on this porch uh, that was just outside of the of the B hut, our living quarters, and immediately he just starts smoking me. you know, get down in the push-up position, start knocking him out. so i'm I'm doing push-ups and he's yelling at me about the chain of command and why it's in place and all this. So what had happened was he found out that I turned my application into the first sergeant, and he he simply asked me, he said, "Why did you do this?" And I said, because I had to do your job for you you weren't doing it and and I knew I was already screwed anyway so I was just gonna be as transparent as I could be at that point I was so mad too and uh he was furious and he must have smoked me for two hours on the porch he went inside and I was still doing flutter kicks on the porch and my uh my team leader Uh, which is just under the section sergeant, he came around the porch and they had just got done at the hangar working on aircraft for the day. And he just looked over me while I was, uh, you know, covered in sweat and dirt and everything, laying on the porch doing flutter kicks and said, well, this is a good intro into what you're going to be getting into, I guess. And I kind of looked at him like, well, what what are you talking about? And he's like, "Uh, you got into Green Platoon. You're going to 160th. And so all of a sudden, all the frustration, all this furious anger that I had was just gone. And I just started doing flutter kicks as fast as I ever had in my life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so the whole thing here, though, might have been more that the section sergeant not only found out that you're turning the 4187, but damn it, you got accepted. And so that yeah. probably infuriated him even that much more when he found that information out, because it was probably the first sergeant that came to him and said, hey, I just got Burnett's uh, information, and I just want you to know that uh, he got approved. So you might want to pass on the word to him that he's good to go or something. And that probably was like, "What? What do you mean? I, I never, I never even knew that he got the uh, forty one eighty seven or any you know, of the paperwork in." Yeah, unbelievable. That's that's yeah. great. But that was just the beginning because yep. Uh, yep. did you return from the deployment immediately, or was it one of these things that you had to wait until the deployment is over before you started into the uh, the green platoon or what?
1: Got, made contact with the 160th recruiter and he said pretty much you'll have orders right when you get back stateside to uh try out for uh 160th and go through our selection process so we we wrapped up in afghanistan so i was there another month month and a half packing uh packing everything up passing everything off to the next uh, division that was coming in to replace us and then um Then headed back to the States after that deployment and uh, got all situated at home. And it wasn't two days later back at the hangar stateside that uh, the same guy who was keeping me from the unit was the one handing me my orders to go into 160th and try out. (laughs) Wow. So now when you walk into
0: 160th, just to be clear, um, it is a selection process. You're not technically there. You're there to actually go through the selection to determine whether or not you will be a part of that unit.
1: Correct. Yeah. So Green Platoon, which is a five week extensive grueling course where they weed out all the people who aren't just aren't cut out to be in that unit is kind of what uh, what what happens to me and i get through uh green platoon you know and we started with uh 86 guys and graduated about half of that and so the attrition rate was pretty high at the time when i went through that was 2010 and then after that i graduated and then on my way to uh 160th
2: so what's the selection process then, David? Is, is it purely five weeks physical? Is there uh, academic type things as well? or? Yep. so it's,
1: it, it's broken out into each week, uh, covers a different topic. So uh, the five different things covered and each one goes through the process of each week is uh, combatives, uh, weapons training, uh, combat lifesaver, CLS, and first aid land nav and i believe the last one is just built in to you know physically push you to your limits kind of thing yeah.
0: now it was a whole idea here obviously to weed people out and select and stuff like that but is it also um a case where you're this this was stuff that you can prepare for though i mean obviously the things that you just mentioned are are things that people can become very familiar with and can make it there. So what's the part that weeded out most people? Is it the course itself, the, the op tempo of the course, the physicality of it? What's the thing that you felt like, you
1: know, a traded 50% of it? I'm going to say it's, it's the physically demanding aspect of it. And the sleep deprivation, I would say, as far as, you know, nonstop, as far as, I mean, they would they would say, "Okay, the day's over at eleven eleven p.m. and say you have to be back here at at two a.m. two in the morning." And so it's like some guys just couldn't couldn't deal with that that schedule and and um, set up you know have the right mindset to complete the course because it was it was like that nonstop to where you know you were trying to get some sleep here and there.
0: Yeah. So, just so we're very clear, you know, for those people who may not really know much about 160th, it didn't really cut its teeth and got its name or, you know, known and everything through the baptism during the Operation Urgent Fury in Grenada in 1983. I think it was only formed a couple of years prior to that, like around 1981 or something of that nature, when it was the 160th uh, Battalion as part of the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, but it was really during Operation Urgent Fury that it became known, I guess, as you will. And since that time, of course, it's taken on greater responsibilities, whether it, you know, in all kinds of special operations, whether it's SEALs, Rangers, you know, Green Beret, Special Forces, and all different soft units, of course, in in the support that they provide.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, you know, I'm grateful for the people who, for the, for the men who stood up the unit and, it was very secretive back then in the eighties, but it's kind of more known now. And, um, there've been a few books written about how it's been stood up, how it was stood up back in the eighties. And, um, so I'm just grateful to be a part of that kind of lineage. Yeah. I
0: mean, it's got a deep history. And of course, now I think a lot of people are very familiar with 160th. as soon as you say that, whereas back in the day, it probably wasn't as commonplace as it is today. It's just, uh, be- it become a lot more well-known, I think, because so many people end up following the soft community.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we're working side by side with a lot of the top guys out there, you know, both the U.S. and coalition forces. So, you know, you, you often hear about how they're getting dropped off into these places. And that's that's when yeah. our name
2: is mentioned quite a bit. Oh, yeah. So, so does one sixty only support soft then, or or do they do other operations as well, David? Uh, mainly,
1: mainly just soft. Uh, never was I a part of uh, a mission or really anything for that matter where they were like, "Hey, we have these packs that need to go from this FOB to this FOB. Can you just give them a ride or whatever?" I never experienced anything like that. Yeah. So main, mainly just soft. Yeah.
0: Okay. So here you are, this green guy, just got done completing the uh, selection, and you think, uh, whew, thank God, man, I'm now I'm part of the 160th, but the ride just began, because about that time frame, the guy that was your sectional sergeant, you met basically the same kind of people as you walk in the unit, I'm sure, that uh, you were green, you were the new guy, and new meat is always good in those types of units.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, to say the least, it absolutely is. And um, so at the last day of green platoon uh we all came into the classroom and they hand us our maroon beret to get our flash sewn on the the front but when the one of the instructors was giving us our beret uh, each one that came up to the front of the class they would tell them which company and which battalion they're going to be uh given orders to and so that's when i kind of find found out uh, alpha company second battalion and I wasn't sure if that was a maintenance uh, company or a flight company. And I come to find out after talking to one of the guys when I went to go sit back down in my seat that it was, in fact, a flight company. And that's when I realized, well, I'm going to go straight into being a Chinook crew chief on the best aircraft platform in the world yeah and so I was elated at that point
0: oh I bet man this is your dream this is exactly what you had envisioned the guy hanging out the door there that you had saw I mean that was that was it that was now you can see yourself there but again you were the new guy on the block
1: (laughs) yeah so uh I I quickly found out after I met my new platoon sergeant after making my way onto the the, the compound you know everything's new it's a secure facility uh just it's still inside fort campbell but it's secured in its own right and not many people have access to it so uh, it was pretty cool and i meet my platoon sergeant for the first time and i quickly realize it's definitely just starting because he lists off you know a bunch of schools right away that I have to complete before I can even deploy with the unit as a crew chief. And that in itself is going to take just shy of a year to, to complete. And so I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll just, you know, one thing at a time and then hopefully get to deploy with the unit one of these days.
0: So what happens to those guys that end up going through this different training, such as SEER and Dunker and BMQ and stuff like that? So what ends up happening to those guys that don't make it through? Is it still kind of part of the selection? So if you wash out of something like this then um, and you can be recycled, obviously, or and such, but at some point you're no longer going to be part of 160th because you just can't cut the mustard?
1: Um, It's kind of a case by case basis. But for the most part, after you get through Green Platoon, if you can't get through any of these other courses and schools required uh, to become a crew member, uh, you pretty much get sent to maintenance or another place within the unit and if there's no place there for you then it's going to be needs of the army and yeah you're not going to have a place in 160th
0: now does maintenance get the move over to become like you and the um uh, the flight crew chief side of it they have that same kind of opportunity is it and is it the same paperwork and such or is it uh, more of a lateral transfer
1: 160th is was far different than uh my time as a maintainer in the conventional army so uh, a lot of the maintainers in 160th work side by side with the, with the crew chiefs, and they it's a lot more tight knit community than I experienced on my first deployment. And so, what ends up happening is the platoon sergeants or flight engineers within the flight company, you know, some of these maintainers who stick out, put in a lot of work, are are showing up early, are doing the things they need to do. Start standing out to everybody in flight company and then sometimes they're often extended an invitation to say hey do you want to become a crew chief here in Alpha Company or Bravo Company and that's kind of that's kind of how it works there.
0: So if you go through selection, I went through with you and I got maintenance and you got the flight company. Is it safe to assume then that the reason why you got it is because you, are, you graded out higher? You, you did something that obviously indicated that you belonged into um, that side of it, which is going to be more active per se. I guess I would call it more active because you're going be, um, to be more deployable than you would be on the, on the maintenance side.
1: Yeah, that did play a role in me going straight into flight company. But another thing that I had in my back pocket that some of these other 15 uniform Chinook guys did not was I had a deployment under my belt and I would, I had been doing maintenance for the last year on the, on the Chinook. Well, the other 15 uniforms in my class, uh, were straight out of basic training and AIT and then went straight into green platoon. So they, they had never been to, conventional unit prior so their only experience was working on an aircraft in AIT yeah so for them the easy choice for the 160th command was to put them into a maintenance role and get their experience built up before they were actually flying yeah that makes perfect sense
0: so so you end up going through some additional training, and so maybe quickly it'll it'll help for people who don't understand the type of training that uh, 160th, especially non-commissioned officer enlisted soldiers, end up going through to kind of give an idea of what that is. And then, you know, I also think it might be fair for those who are, uh, when they think of 160th, they always think of the pilots, of course, but they go through a separate, I guess, green platoon um, yeah. training. Yeah. So a different track and everything. But it's almost the same track. It's the same process, if you will, selection-wise up to that point.
1: Yeah, it's the same process for sure. I'll touch on that in a second. Uh, I'll hit the schools real quick. So I, I find out that I have to go through three schools before I'm able to deploy with the unit. So I have to go through Dunker School, Sears School, and BMQ. Dunker School was a instruction in overwater ditching uh, procedures and tactics. So if the aircraft were ever to uh, go into the drink while doing overwater operations, I would know how to um, egress from a sunken aircraft that's been completely submerged, turned over underwater. And they do that at a school called Dunker school where they simulate an aircraft crashing, which is a, a cockpit, dangling over the pool uh, about a 10 15 foot deep pool with a hydraulic crane and the crane drops while you're strapped in and you hit the water submerge roll over and you're you you have to unbuckle and egress so you do that a, a number of times but uh the idea there is the,
0: and the idea there of course is to follow your bubbles so if you follow your yeah. bubbles then you know exactly where the top is because they're going to go to the top so
1: yeah Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, we had two guys fail out of that class, uh, but they, but the aquatic center where this training takes place is in Fort Campbell. So some of those guys were from different battalions. Uh, so they, they might not have been from Campbell the next school. So after I passed that, then I had to go into Sears school. Uh, so I went, uh, to Sears school in Fort Bragg where I, linked up with uh, guys in the pipeline going through the Q course. And this is just a part of their training, SEER school, of their entire
0: Yeah, two years,
1: right. Yeah. So I got to uh, amalgamate with some of these uh, Green Beret candidates and go through survival evasion, resist, and escape school, which was the best, worst military (laughs) training I've ever had in my life. So I, I won't dive too deep into that because I could write a whole book on just Seer School. But uh, get through Seer School and then get back to the company. And then two weeks later, I start another course called BMQ, basic, basic Mission Qualification Course. So this is where I finally get to learn the ins and outs of becoming a crew chief. So I'm flying every day. Uh, days into nights, flying nights, logging flight hours, learning the three main tasks to become a basic mission qualified crew chief within the unit, which is guns, hoist, and HAR. So we have to be proficient on the M134 minigun, clearing jams, uh, disassembling the weapon and reassembling it, being able to know how to shoot uh, depending on how fast you're going, airspeed and ground speed. Um, and then the second task is hoist, where we need to be competent in rescuing a, uh, let's say someone who just was shot uh, from the external hoist. So operating the hoist, bringing a survivor back on board, and then uh, getting out of there, uh, leaving the target. And then the last thing is HAR, helicopter aerial refueling, where we are in charge of monitoring the in-flight refuel panel while the pilots are plugged up to a C-130 while in-flight taking on fuel. So those are the three main tasks we need to complete during BMQ. BMQ was three and a half months long, and during that time we did TDY trips to Virginia and New Mexico. To do desert mountain stuff and overwater overwater flying, and so that kind of really uh, was my first experience, and you know opened my eyes into the possibilities of what actually a crew chief does and what the role entails. So that was when I first got to, you know, start up the aircraft, fly. I mean, it it was, you know, I was like a kid in a candy store the whole time we were flying. I was just so excited to have finally got to the point that I set out to do when I saw that crew chief taxiing on the flight line in Afghanistan on my first deployment. So that was when I really felt like, okay, I've made it, I'm doing it. And so those were the three schools. And then after the school's I find out uh, after BMQ about a week later that I'm headed over to the box. I I couldn't have been more excited. Yeah.
0: So you go over for your deployment, and this time obviously you got a chance to go outside the wire a little bit more than you did the first time because it was more of a maintenance role and stuff.
1: It wasn't until my second deployment with uh, 160th where it was like, Oh man, this is this is pretty intense stuff. <laughs> what I signed up for—that was more coming into the summertime and poppy season, where you you know the local populace harvest poppy to make uh, opium. They're growing drugs, and they're on all of their drugs. So every time we're flying, we're getting shot at. I, I come to learn that you know if if this crew chief role. You know, if it weren't for this crew chief role that I decided to set out to do just a year or so ago, I wouldn't be forging these bonds that I got to come to know and you know be able to call these guys who I flew with my brothers. You know, the pilots, the crew, the customers that we had on board. It was just, uh, I, I, it's just hard to explain. You know, that that brotherhood and camaraderie that you form with these guys that you work so closely with. What
0: was it about the fourth and fifth deployment that you found to be probably the, the hardest in terms of all the action and everything that you saw? What was it that, what was it that you would describe that was uh, the most challenging out of that?
1: On one of those deployments, uh, there was mass casualty evacuation. And when we dropped guys off in the middle of the night, at this, this time we were working with 2nd Ranger Battalion, 275. And we were doing a two-ship infill to go pick up an IED facilitator. Uh, He was uh, higher up on the top of the list of guys to go after. And I was chalk one on that that night, and I had been for most of that deployment. Sometimes we we change birds, but I was chalk one. After we drop guys off, often chalk two will stay in a 10-minute air loiter just in case Anything happens after the initial infill. Um, so, if something were to happen, they would go in and pick up whoever, or be able to lay down some suppressive fire. After we drop the guys off, we we're pulling out from the target, Chalk One and Chalk Two, and we're about 200 feet off the ground. And I'm looking off the the ramp of the aircraft, and I see this massive explosion. And I couldn't believe my eyes. You know, I'd never seen anything like it. I didn't know. What I had just seen really, until it kind of dawned on me, you know, we're going after an IED facilitator. That was probably an IED. Uh, and before I could say anything to the pilots, uh, one of the uh, one of the ground force came over the comms and said, uh, "Prepare for nine line." And yeah, you know, for those listening, that's nine critical components of information passed to ground or air assets to let them know the situation of the casualties on the ground and so after i heard that my my heart just dropped and we were chalk one so we were we're we're already in route back to um CAF kandahar and but chalk two is still in an air loiter so they're they're waiting to get this nine line and figure out where they're going to land to to pick up these guys uh, While well, all we can do is go land at CAF and just monitor the comms, they end up end up landing and picking up three rangers, and who were really badly wounded. And they, you know, they're turning and burning, hauling ass as fast as they can to get them dropped off at the roll three, at Kandahar, which is where they drop off wounded uh, to get the medical care that they need. And Kandahar is set up set up to do that and take these kinds of uh wounds and be able to treat them so you know the guys on the ground are still out there fighting the fight they're taking on enemy fire from all every every which way still and so we're just monitoring comms all night finally we get the call to come back in and pick them up uh, a few hours later after they had uh, uh, cleared the town and were mission complete Uh, We go pick them up and then land back at Kandahar, and we shut down the bird. You know, all the rangers get off the aircraft and head back to the compound. And uh, before we really start taking off all our gear, I mean, the aircrafts are all shut down and stuff. We, myself, and the rest of the crew from Chalk 1 go over to Chalk 2 to ask if they needed any help. Well, we were not asking if they needed any help. We were going over there to see what had happened. And we go to the back ramp of Chalk 2, and there's just uh, blood and mud just everywhere, caked on the ramp. On the, the entire cabin is full of blood and mud, and just I don't even know what else was on the floor. But it went from, hey, what happened, to, oh, man, how can? what do you guys need help with? We'll help you get your bird squared away before we even mess with ours. So – that that was one of the the toughest toughest nights for me uh and uh toughest times for me was that deployment and that we we lost 3 three rangers they uh, they all passed away that night and um I'll never forget that night and that was kind of that was kind of the toughest toughest deployment for me that one so and that's yeah, I mean, and then the next day they did a uh, remembrance ceremony it, with inside uh, the compound, which we shared with uh, the Rangers and all the other 160th personnel. And uh, it was the it was the the saddest thing I've ever witnessed or been a part of. I
0: can't imagine. And and this was your fourth deployment, so you had another one after this one. Um, how long between the fourth and fifth deployment was it?
1: about four months okay before before i headed back same and area
0: the, or uh, did you end up going to it
1: a... uh we we were in calf mostly uh that time it was like half of that deployment i was in calf and the other half we were in shank supporting uh teams gotcha we were working with those guys out there for for a while
0: how long was it after the fifth deployment then that you ended up deciding, okay, this is it. I just need to go ahead and hang it up and and make that transition.
1: I made my decision on the flight from the States into Afghanistan because I had been getting uh, heckled from all the guys uh, in the company, you know, wanted me to stay and, you know, getting... Getting uh, constant meetings with the first sergeant, at, you know, telling him he wants me to stay and, you know, this is this is how much you'd get. This is the bonus money, you know, all this stuff. So from the time that I stepped foot in the Alpha Company office, it was, you know, who the hell is this new guy? Don't sit in an office chair. You have to earn that chair, too. Okay, now, you know, I'm sitting in an office chair watching new guys come in uh, from Green Platoon who have to stand, and I was that guy one time, and now I'm the guy that these guys are asking me to stay. Yeah. Uh. But, but on the on the flight over for my fifth deployment into Kandahar, I I said this is going to be the last one.
0: Yeah. And how much time was that from the time that you were in, you know, Green Platoon, or at least finished all of your your training? That one year later, until the time that you made that transition? Just for clarity.
1: Um, four years. So yeah. I was. Yeah, I, 2010 to 2014, I was in 160th, and 2008 to 2010 was my regular Army.
0: And transition, as you would say, was probably one of your hardest, uh, that was one of your, your biggest challenges. And I think that we find that in many cases, especially for those who have been in the soft community, um, you know, and making that transition into the private sector, because it's, it's definitely different, and especially as many deployments as uh, you guys end up going
1: on. Yeah, it was, it, it was easy for me the first uh, few months just because I was still in Tennessee, so I was still close to Fort Campbell. I saw Chinooks flying over my house every day almost, So, and then my buddies lived there, so it was easy to talk to them. We hung out a lot still, but then I, I started drinking a lot more, and I started remembering that fourth deployment a lot more, and... It, it it began harder for me to cope, and alcohol became the most important thing for me to cope with some of the things that I witnessed while I was deployed. And I didn't think it was an issue until six months ago. And um, after six months in Tennessee, after being out, uh, moved back to Colorado. And, and this was uh,
0: 2014 yeah yeah
1: set, set up shop here 2014 summertime it was just uh it was it was tough you know civilians didn't talk the same they didn't have the same humor uh, they i i felt like that a lot of the times i interacted with people at social events um they were they were fake they always put on a fake smile and you know they always want to Put out this persona that's you know that's good in front of other people, but that's not really who you are. So it's like I I don't know. It's this upbeat bravado bullshit that right. was really starting to get to me, and I was like, "All right, man, you know, do your thing." So I I stopped being as social as I as I once was, and then uh, towards the end of <clears throat> 2017. A good friend of mine, uh, Staff Sergeant Alex Delita, uh, was killed in the Q course on the HME range. And he was a former 160th Blackhawk crew chief, and that's how I knew him. And, uh, you know, I was, I was consuming copious amounts of alcohol every week um, up to that point. And then when I learned about his death, uh, a, a, a switch flipped in me, and I said, you know, I, I have to, I have to stop doing what I'm doing. If, if not for me, then, you know, for, for Alex, who, who would probably want me to stop drinking. Um, that's what I told myself.
0: Yeah. Well, you think about a lot of people probably would have actually used that as a different opportunity. You know, um, I wouldn't say a lot, but there are people that probably would have said, yeah, I, I, you know, and send, and actually send them deeper, um, down the path, you know? Yeah. Again, bringing up memories. Now it's somebody very dear to you.
1: Yeah, and I could have went down that path and and kept drinking, or I could have just uh, just continued on with it. And everything we talked about, I started putting down on paper when I got out in two thousand fourteen, and you know, a short story turned into like ten thousand words. And that was three months after I was out. and then I started really drinking. So I stopped writing. And then when when uh, when Alex died, I uh, I stopped drinking, and then I put pen to paper again and have since been able to finish writing everything and more than that we just talked about, and bundled it up all into a nice book. And so this will be the first
0: book, as I understand it, from a uh, enlisted perspective of the 160th, then.
1: Yep. All other books that have been written about uh, 160th from people who have been in the unit have been done so by uh, commissioned officers.
0: And so this will be a definitely a different perspective because, of course, you know, there's much, uh, I would say... Um, or, or at least there is probably a different perspective of seeing on the front of the aircraft versus the back of the air, uh, aircraft, and um, much that goes on inside the aircraft that the pilots are focused very much on flying the aircraft. That this book will probably lend a lot of that uh, information and and allow people to get that that different viewpoint.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, and um, the Chinook is classified as a crew-served weapon. So you remove one of those crew chiefs from that crew-served weapon; it's no different from removing a bolt from a weapon system that you're that you want to shoot. You know, once you remove that crew chief, that that helicopter is, in a, in a sense, useless. Yeah, because
0: inoperable.
1: Yeah, yeah. The 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 crew in the back, it, you know, when. A customer gets on board they might not realize how much communicating and how much talking we're doing to one another through our through our helmets and our headsets uh from the pilots to us us to the pilots us to one another uh it's just and then once you once you get a well-groomed crew all working together it's it's like a it's like the organs symphony playing in your head it's just so beautiful because everyone's just Working with one another, and it's just amazing to see such a well-groomed crew, you know, do such amazing things. So from the soft community, you may be recognized as that
0: guy, or the guy that runs the gun, or the guy that has the headset that's talking to the pilots, but you're still kind of the unknown entity or the unknown person... You might be respected in terms of you know, of course, you're 160th and you're on that aircraft and you're going to get me from Infill or Xville or whatever the case may be. But um, you mentioned that you're still kind of that guy that it's that shadow uh, that's inside that that bird, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know in in a lot of uh, interviews and speaking engagements that I've that I've listened to uh, from seals or rangers or other people in the soft community uh refer to us as door gunners or or or, gu- or helicopter guides or fuelers or so i i think there's a misconception and i think that misconception is, is there because people don't know about what it is what it is we do and what the job entails uh so in writing this book, I hope to bring some of that to, to light and uh, hope to share to the world. Hey, this is what a one sixtieth crew chief is.
0: Yeah. In the same token, do you also bring to it some of the, the story about the transition aspects of it, and and share your own personal journey?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I didn't want to write about my transition just because it, it was really a dark place for me to to go to and. Uh, put on paper and, and share with people. But after I wrote a few pages, it started really helping me uh, through the process of coping. So instead of alcohol, my outlet became writing. Yeah. And so I'm I'm grateful for that. And I'm happy that I was able to to find that out about myself to where i can have this therapeutic outlet and not have all this stuff built up in my head well it just like in these
0: podcasts as well as with the book it's very important to get a personal connection with the person you're either listening to or that you're reading about or something like that so that you can make that connection and not everybody you know like you know we always talk about social media not everybody has that positive persona that they're throwing out there that's not real life that's just what they want to portray or what they want to give so by reading the book and seeing some of the, your own struggles and the stories that you described here of having you know dealt with adversity in multiple levels and whether it was from the you know the very front guy that didn't want you to go in through going through the the training and the different levels that you had to go through there and then of course dealing with the multiple deployments and the adversity that you uh, you had at that end of it the transition i mean it's a story it's your story. And by putting it all in there and, and not leaving anything out, then I get to understand their author that much more.
1: Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad I was able to be able to write that, that piece of my life down in the book. And if anything, help at least one veteran going through some of the things that I went through and, you know, someone can see that, Hey, I'm not the only one going through this shit. There's someone else who did it and, and look, look where he's kind of placed himself now. Now I understand. And I think,
2: go ahead. Uh, I think that's really important, David, for, for other people out there to, to, to realize that others have gone through it, are going through it. Uh, and ultimately, unfortunately, I guess others will go through it again. So, you know, for you to be able to capture your story, is is a great aid, I think, for for other people who who are going through something similar, or, or in future, unfortunately, who will go through the same thing. So, good on you, man. Yeah,
0: especially in the soft community, because as we talked about on the phone, David. I mean, there's a lot of folks that if you haven't been there, you're not really going to talk about it unless you've talked. To, you can talk about it with somebody that may have experienced some of the th- same things you, you have. And of course, it's a it's a closer community. It's um, you know, you're talking about. Things that you can't discuss necessarily in in some cases, but uh, someone who's been there and lived within that type of community can understand and relate to the types of things that you're going to talk about or that you would share, and it's much easier that way. And I'm sure there's going to be some aspects within this book that people will um, that have been within that community without even sharing a whole lot of information, we'll know exactly what you're talking about. We'd be able to see and understand and say, yeah, okay, I, I get it. He did, you know, he went through this or he experienced this. And and it gives you, again, it gives you, even as reading it, I make a connection through words on a piece of paper that allow maybe me perhaps to go through some of the challenges that I might be going through as well. That's, that's kind of your hope as well, I think, um, through the authoring.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's 100% my hope. And uh, granted, the Pentagon ever finishes their review process, I can get it out there to everybody to experience for themselves.
0: Yeah, and you just got the title finished, right? So you just finalized the title. And so maybe share what the title is.
1: Yeah, so the title is Making a Night Stalker, the Triumph and Near Tragedy of a Special Operations Aviator.
0: So just so we're clear, what you just made a comment about and we kind of laughed on is that there is a process by which all of this information has to be vetted properly through the Pentagon. And as we understand it, there's one person, you know, a lady who is responsible for reading all the material and going back and looking at all of the records and stuff and making sure that you're not providing any information that shouldn't be shared with the general public. Um, and it's not for public consumption and editing that or whatever the case may be, or giving the the rubber stamp of approval. And you're kind of next in line as uh, you understand it. It's been a, what, a two year process so far or a year, a little over a year. Uh,
1: well, I just actually, I submitted the final manuscript to the Pentagon at the beginning of January of this year. And, uh, as of a month ago, I was number 15 in line to be reviewed as of two weeks ago I'm number five in line so at this rate uh I think you know I, sh- I should be done pretty soon but um, sadly after the Pentagon the lady gets to determine what other military divisions need to look at it if there's something that she doesn't understand ah, so it could okay. yeah it, it could go to USASOC PaO socom paO and then if there's something in there that they don't understand you may go it to could 160th. just sixtieth. Yeah. And just keep just trickle down. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Trickle down from there.
0: Yeah. So, you know, it's great that we got a chance to talk with you about uh, your story and I appreciate you taking time to come on because, you know, this might be something that could take six months to a year or so before we actually see the publication of the book. Of course, you're hoping not, but it could be a while before we actually get a chance to experience this. But by hearing the story on here, hopefully somebody can still take away much of what you just described as well. Um, in hopes of what you're, you're hoping to put within the book and get the same um, things out of as an author. So, again, appreciate you coming on, David, and, and sharing about this. And I wish you much success on your book, that's for sure. Once it once it comes out, you'll have to let us know so that we can make sure we get it out there on social media. And, and for anybody that wants to follow, you're actually on social media right now. And maybe it'll be good for you to kind of give your um, the name, username, or whatever that you're using on social media for people who may want to look you up.
1: Yeah, sure. So Instagram, I'm um, at making underscore a underscore night underscore stalker. So you didn't make it easy. Night stalk- you yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's it's making a night stalker instead of spacing each word out. It's an underscore and then uh, I just launched a website where you can subscribe to get uh, updates on the book, and uh, I can update uh, everybody when, it, when it's expected to come out. Uh, that's makinganightstalker.com. Uh, and then uh, Twitter, I'm NSDQ2160, and uh, Facebook, I'm Making a Night Stalker as well. Okay. So most of it's making a
0: night stalker except for the Twitter handle.
1: Okay, cool.
0: Yep. Hopefully everybody will go out there and and follow you on Instagram or on your social media and at least start following how and when the book is going to come out or at least what the status is of that. Um, I'm looking forward to reading the book so that I can learn more about some of the stuff. I know you didn't want to share and I didn't want you to put too much of the information in there because then it makes it that much more exciting to read the book. But uh, again, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. it was uh, It was an honor for me to come on and share my story. It Really was. It's good to meet you, you, David. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and
0: at Facebook by searching at Mentors the number four M I L. And please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device. And we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. Hey everyone, Robert here. I love supporting veteran-owned companies, and Mentors for Military recently partnered with Skeleton Optics to offer a ten percent discount to our listeners. That's right, ten percent. These aren't your regular run-of-the-mill sunglasses, by the way. The frames are handcrafted in Italy with Zeiss Vision lenses. Use the code Mentors for MIL or Mentors the number four M I L at skeletonoptics.com, and you'll receive your ten percent discount automatically at checkout. Hurry up and get on over there to support a veteran-owned company.